0: Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear, and welcome to this Classic Album Club podcast. In this episode, we revisit Ian Dury and the Blockhead's classic 1977 album, New Boots and Panties.
1: To be honest, it, it made us popular. And, to be honest, when I met Ian, he was very left field. I could see that he was burnt out with the Kilburns, and that's why I suggested, hey, do you fancy writing some new songs? And and he was up for it, because he needed a change. And that's what brought about, quite soon after that, the Blockheads.
0: We'll be hearing from former manager and Stiff Records label boss, Dave Robinson, about the marriage of the Blockheads' grooves with Ian's unforgettable lyrics.
2: That kind of whole slightly funk, slightly rock and roll kind of vibe and Ian's incredible uh, double entendre lyrics became a bit of a standout.
0: First, let's hear Dave describe the origins of Stiff Records' relationship with Ian Dury.
2: I looked after Ian, so I'd been looking after Ian for years, really, which involved mainly uh, funding him. My management responsibilities was doling out money to him from time to time. Um... So I looked after him for quite a while, but eventually I came to the idea that he really needed a publisher and he needed some regular income. I didn't have a regular uh, income, really, and he was quite, you know, needy. Interesting guy, but, but uh, you know, he could use up money without really thinking about it. So I did a deal with a, a group of people called Black Hill, and Black Hill had, uh, you may know, he, they looked after the Pink Floyd, and they had developed the Pink Floyd to a, to a fine degree before the Pink Floyd moved on to somebody else for management. So they had a few people, Kevin Ayres they looked after, uh, Roy Harper, I remember. But they needed something decent and I needed to unlimber kind of Ian at the time. Ian also was very fussy about his musicians, and I think he'd fired his third band or something, you know, one of those uh, things. So I did a deal with them, Andrew King and Peter Jenner. They decided to sign Ian because his songs were fantastic, but he wasn't really a great singer at this point. He didn't have confidence in his voice, and he was a bit tuneless, but marvellous lyrics. And so they signed him on my recommendation that this is something he could develop. And in return, I got the, um, the office. They had, a, they had an office downstairs that was empty. So I got an office for a year free and I got a telephone for a year free on the basis that Ian would then sign with them in an agreement. And I would uh, stop looking after him, they would look after him. And, and that was great. It was a great deal for me. Ian didn't look over his shoulder even once when he went upstairs to their office. And I started stiff records in that office uh, on that kind of agreement that uh, we had. So, so Ian, although I had known him for several years and, and it had been very interesting, I discovered him in the speakeasy with a very disheveled group of musicians and had developed him a bit and got him playing in a couple of pubs, and, which he didn't really care to do. He was quite snobby about it all. Uh, but he did, he did, because the band, the uh, Kilburn and the High Road didn't have any uh, gigs at all. I started Stiff Records, and he entered Black Hills' relationship. And, you know, he from time to time I heard the odd kind of bit of news from him or whatever, or I met him in the street. Uh, you know, we were very chummy, but, but we weren't uh, financially connected. Stiff Records got going. Uh, it came from a management company that I had. I managed Graham Parker and I started to manage a few other people. I was aware, Ian kept me abreast of the fact that he was doing these new demos after about a year or so. He's doing these demos and I was hearing them. And at some point, he discovered Chas Jankel along the way. And suddenly, the tracks became much more interesting. Prior to that, Ian had essentially a great love of Gene Vincent. And his musical connection, although in later years he, he said he loved jazz and various other things, to my knowledge his basic musical um, roots were in kind of rockabilly and Gene Vincent, Sweet Gene Vincent is an example on the record. He was feeding me the demos and I could hear that things were, were improving. Equally... After a certain point, he then had a drummer, he had a rhythm section. Prior to that, Chaz was playing kind of guitar or piano to Ian's uh, songs. And then a rhythm section appeared, and then it became very, very interesting. So Peter Jenner, who was uh, the manager at this point, one of the co-manager, decided that he, his relationship with EMI, which he had obviously built up through the Pink Floyd, would get ian a big deal he was also aware that the songs were really coming on and at some point stiff was going and i said to him "Uh, what about stiff uh, peter and he said oh it's a bit big for you this one this is going to be a really big one dave i had taken some tapes around record companies of ian's they really weren't going to pay any attention really even the new songs were not quite uh, what emi i thought were or other majors so Peter Jenner spent about four months going around all the major record companies and being rejected. Eventually, uh, Peter came to me and said, look, um, maybe, maybe you should put something out. Maybe you should put... <laughs> and at this point, I thought, yes, gotcha. So the tracks were, were becoming really significantly good. And the uh, new boots and panties was assembled... By, uh, with the help of Stiff and, and Peter and Andrew, they were, they were good people, still are. And uh, eventually this uh, album uh, surfaced.
0: Dave's belief in Ian's project was important in the early development of new boots and panties. And perhaps even a more crucial aspect was Ian's partnership with musical collaborator, songwriter, and multi instrumentalist Chaz Jankel.
1: I, I joined Ian and the Kilburns which was the last manifestation of Kilman and the High Roads. And for quite a while, um, I just played um, a Wurlitzer electric piano. And um, then I gradually introduced the the fact that I played a guitar. There was a guitar player in the band already, Ed Spate. Um, But I think I just got my guitar out one day and I started playing and Ian sort of noticed that. And uh, anyway, we carried on doing gigs, pub gigs. After a while, I kind of, I don't know if it's the right thing to say, but it started to sound a little bit kind of suburban. <laughs> it, it, it lacked a sort of like a real drive, and I don't know. And and I said to Ian one day, I said, "Look, do you fancy writing some songs?" He said, "Great, I'd love to." And he decided to stop doing gigs, and uh, he went into writer's mode. He, you know, he sort of, he retired to his uh, wife Betty's house and from there started writing songs i hope i've got my sequence of events right um but that's when we started writing new boots and panties then he came back to his flat overlooking the oval and uh we started writing songs and, and one of the first ones was sex and drugs and rock and roll this was prior to new boots and panties this was just you know just writing songs i wasn't used to ian offering up musical ideas lyrical yes but not musical and one day so he comes into the room and um and i've got a pile of lyrics in front of me which would be my daily um you know which would be a daily event whenever i went over there there'd be you know on his workbench there'd be a pile of lyrics and there it was sex and drugs and rock and roll i'd seen it before but i just didn't know how do you get a song out of sex and drugs and rock and roll i mean it's not like you know somewhere over the rainbow not that I was looking for that but um, I didn't couldn't get it anyway so one day um, I'm over there looking at sex and drugs and rock and roll and Ian comes in and he goes bum, 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 sex and drugs and rock and roll wow that's real inventive so whilst he was making some coffee I, I, I put the you know the the bridge together <laughs> slammed it together and uh, you know and we had it Another song we were writing that time was Sweet Jean Vincent. Um, I can't remember exactly what sequence it was of songs we wrote, but it, it, it was pretty much the same time we wrote that song. Also, at that point, um, we were starting to demo our material at Alvik in Wimbledon. That was just Ian and myself. He was playing drums, and I was basically playing everything else, and he was singing. And uh, Al of Alvik, he said, listen, guys, he said, I know it's really good rhythm section, Charlie and Norman. Uh, they hire themselves out, and uh, I think you know you should give them a go. You know, it's been very polite to us, and um, so we thought, right, okay. So they came down to the studio, and the first time we got together, we we um, recorded "Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll," "Sweet Jean Vincent," and "Blockheads," the song "Blockheads," and on playback, you know, we were in we were in the control room, and Charlie Charles looks down at his shoes, and he's look, reading Ian's lyric you must have seen parties of blockheads with shoes like dead pig's noses and he and he looks at his footwear and he goes here and that's me and uh, we, and no one went yeah we're the blockheads high fives all round and the name the title of the song jumped off the lyric sheet and became our band name the blockheads
0: Dave Robinson's stiff records already had a strong following prior to the release of Ian and the Blockhead's debut album, so that was utilised when it came to advertising and selling the album.
2: Now, stiff at the time had probably a following of about 40,000, which had built up you know, from the releases that we had made and John Peel, inevitably, who played... Uh, Stiff from a very early stage. Uh, I'd been a friend of John's for a long time, a lot of festivals together over a couple of years. And so when we got uh, some records ready, we'd sent them off to him and he'd been very good about playing them. So 40,000 Stiff fans kind of went out and bought everything on Stiff.
1: Stiff was really important to, to, to Ian and to the other artists. I mean, what first comes to mind is their visuals. Their visuals were unlike anything else. You know, their packaging, um, they had a very kind of left field, let's go kind of ethic. They didn't hang around. Um, You know, like any day if you turned up there, there could be all, there was all loads of artists. There was a pub just practically next door. You know, Elvis Costello could be there, Nick Lowe. You know, you'd always see somebody. Um, Reckless Eric. Um, So it was quite a sort of very energized center.
2: Then the stiff tour, Elvis and Jake. Jake, my partner, decided to leave. Goodness knows why, but perhaps financial uh, incentive because Columbia Records in America were very hot to sign Elvis Costello. And we had booked a tour with... Um, I, love, I love package tours and had uh, been involved in several prior to. So Ian Dury, uh, Elvis Costello and the attractions... Uh, Nick Lowe, Larry Wallace and Reckless Eric set out on the road, which was to be Elvis's last uh, work for Stiff. So it was to be the last. He, he had already decided to leave. Jake was leaving. So this is the final effort by Elvis on behalf of Stiff. And so uh, the tour was, was phenomenal. In those days, inevitably, there was a great circuit of university uh, halls that you could play there was a lot of social secretaries booking tours in there and i still meet people who say they met uh, their wife or their worst enemy or whoever at, on a, at a stiff tour in Dury and elvis costello the idea initially was to have a rotating headliner but it soon became a became apparent that uh, Ian and Elvis were very competitive against each other, and they became the headliners, and Eric Nicklow and Larry Wallace took the opening slot on a rotation. It was a fascinating thing, because that kind of thing, you know, bands get to play top of the bill or bottom of the bill or middle of the bill, and it's it's a great experience. Uh, We also got it down to a fine art where the entire show would be about two and a half hours, literally without any um, holes. I think Pete Drummond was one of the people who who did some work on it as a compare, and a couple of other people and it was a remarkable tour. People look back there is a there is a documentary about it all and you can see clearly that Ian Dury and Elvis were uh, very competitive. Ian was almost impossible to follow and in actual fact he, he was more competitive than Elvis. He was Elvis was leaving, so he wasn't too bothered. Uh, Ian, meanwhile, wanted to kill. And so, you know, the back of the bus was him rehearsing every day, back of the coach, and it was great fun. What happened is, after that tour, which Ian kind of was the winner, um, Wake Up, and Make Love, Me, I mean, what a great track. I mean, Chaz Jankel really was a very important ingredient for Ian. And uh, the chemistry of the two of them was excellent, because Chaz... Is, was very uh, musical but also very uh, appreciated ian's lyrics very very dramatically so he was prepared to put up with ian which is always a difficulty is keeping <laughs> keep, keeping ian on the rails and keeping his uh, compadres uh, <coughs> loving him i
1: think what i was doing i was tapping into a vein that ian hadn't explored i was really into afro-american music and i think Truthfully, his musicians that he'd been working with before were into rockabilly, uh, and also they would let Ian take the lead. I, I was loved, you know, Slime and the Family Stone, a man drill, some amazing sort of, um, you know, James Brown. So my my eyes and ears were pointing in that way to, you know, across, you know, to America. That was the, my influences, as well as the Who and you know the Small Faces. But I have to say, really, the funk was and soul was what was turning me on. And um, so. That's what I brought to the, to the table, really.
0: New Boots and Panties was a brilliantly unique record that fitted in perfectly with Stiff Records' roster of groundbreaking maverick artists and would prove to be a defining album in the British new wave scene of the late 70s. Coming up in this episode of Classic Album Club.
2: This guy had a, had a very novel and interesting life, uh, you know, difficult, and it was from that experience that he became this writer and this observer.
1: Working with Ian was extraordinary because every single gig we ever played, the audience went nuts. Ian seemed to have that, the golden touch.
3: He was so interesting with quite a flippy side, but he really dismantled you by being very interesting and very intimidating. That's very rare.
0: Dave Robinson used the powerful and quirky branding of Stiff Records alongside the smash hit, non-album singles that the Blockheads were producing to ensure that new boots and panties quickly became a classic of the decade.
2: What happened at the end of the tour, just to, just to put this in, was that we uh, discovered uh, the, the Stiff bank account, which my partner had kind of run, was not in very good condition. And we had a lot of uh, bills he had left, Elvis had left, and people were saying, "Well, that's the end of stiff." So we planned then to do um, with it, with what was left in the bank account. Ian and I sat down and came up with a with a marketing um, ad, a campaign which which became the you know the benchmark. Uh, we had ads like, um, "Give up smoking and give us your money." And my favourite, which has become memorable in the annals, is Don't Fart Before Your Arse Is Ready. This had a a somewhat profound effect because even some of the music papers didn't want to run this ad, which is remarkable to think of nowadays. We we also had a thing, we were going through EMI at the time for distribution, and we took an ad that said, "Um, Stock now while EMI lasts. And uh, I got a very serious letter, a legal letter from the chairman of EMI about, uh, you know, taking the piss out of his label. Anyway, it had the effect of really turning Ian onto a bigger audience. And also, at this time, they came up with the key song, Reasons to be Cheerful, and obviously Hit Me With Your Rhythm Sick, which had not been on the record. So you had a lot of great tracks on the album, but you then had three big singles which were not on the album, but which had the effect of people buying the album, even though they knew they weren't there. You had the effect of people wanting to get into Ian Dury's head and New Boots and Panties. What a great, what a great album, Uh, you know, the B-side, a couple of the intros to the tracks, you know, we will all know and love forever.
1: To be honest, it it made us popular. And to be honest, when I met Ian, he was very left field, very left field. I'm not even sure if he, how much he wanted mainstream success at that point—he—he he was just like you know enjoying the moment. Um, but as I say, Ian and the Kilburns went as far as it could go as a as a pub act. And it really, I, I you know, and so when I joined him, I could see that he was burnt out with the Kilburns, and that's why I suggested, "Hey, do you fancy writing some new you know songs?" And and he was up for it because he needed a change, and that's what brought about. You know, uh, you know, you know, quite soon after that, The Blockheads.
0: One of those classic hits that brought fame to The Blockheads was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. I
1: don't know where I was. I, I did just have to take an exit now and again because um, things could get quite hairy, you know. Ian was quite demanding. Sometimes I had to, use to back off and do other things. So we did a big tour of, of, of Britain and we were doing a lot of colleges. I think it was 78 and we were really at the top of our tree, you know. I mean, we were getting a lot of positive feedback colleges were loving us etc etc and then you know hit me came about i'd gone down to ian's house he'd rented a house in rolvenden and he'd set up a drum kit and there was a fender roads and we started jamming together and i had this little kind of riff going and he was playing the drums and it felt pretty good but um you know at the the end of the day i said look i'm going now and off i went and i drove back to eastcote where i was living in north london and um the following morning for some reason I, i i think i put on new boots and panties, I put on Wake Up and there was a, something about Wake Up, the end piano section, and I thought, Why do I like that? Why do I like it? And if you listen very carefully to the record, it goes ba And I thought, you know what? If I use that little duck and put it with the jam I'd been having with Ian two days before, I'd get ba-ding-ding-ding ba, ding ding, ding, ding de, dum, bah, bom, ba, dum, dum And I went, wow, this is cool. So I called up Ian and I said, Look, I've got this idea, you know, you've got to hear this. So I said, yeah, come down. And I went down there and in two days he'd moved the piano from the living room into the garage. And, uh, you know, so he sort of gives me the lyric that he's kind of written very succinct, you know, just three verses and a chorus, which was very different from often what he presented me with, because often it was much longer and I'd have to be, you know, edit it to an extent. And and he said, I'll see see, see you in 20 minutes. And he went back in the house and uh literally 20 minutes later i'd kind of you know knock knock together the choruses with my and and then put my funky little vamp in back and we had it the next day we got the blockheads down we rehearsed it another couple of days later we went into the workhouse studio in the old kent road where we had recorded new boots and panties and um and i remember calling my mother up from the studio and i said mum we've just recorded our first number one i he had it written all over it and, but a lot of to do with the fact also, not only what I think it was a very, very strong record, the older I get, the, the more I realise, okay, you know about yourself, but what you know you've got to do is you can't just sit at home. You've got to go out the front door and hope for the best. When I met Ian, I was looking for a lyricist. I thought a lyricist, but you know, a lyricist is part of a person you know, it's not just a lyricist on a stick, you know, on, on legs. A lyricist is a person. And I met Ian, you know, he, he opened up my eyes to lots of things. I mean, he, he opened up my eyes to jazz, for example. Main, you know, proper jazz, you know, real jazz, you know, like bebop and everything. And um, that was fantastic. Um, he was very open-minded musically. And, and uh, you know, loved country music, you know, all kinds of obscure sort of um, Greek folk music and all kinds of stuff we would listen to and he was 10 years older than me and he was always like a kind of
0: big brother someone else that saw all sides of ian's unique personality was his son baxter who also featured on the front cover of new boots and panties when he was five years old
3: my granddad had died just before i was born but i mean he was another kind of a narrative figure more painted by dad i think he was a bit of a chap from the east end and my granny was very very learned middle-class lady. So I think there was a convergence of cultures and at a time where that was rarer, which produced someone like Dad, you yeah. know, which he was allowed to access those things. It wasn't, you know, I guess it was what the true definition of a Mockney is. It was very, very, very well read, pretty well educated, apart from the disruptions as a kid because he went to hospital and stuff. So then, and then massive sort of social interest in his environment. So kind of being brought up in the East End, probably in a more middle-class environment, but had all that around him. So I think he just tied it all together. It's like Dickens, really, I guess. Musical Dickens. He was so interesting with quite a flippy side, but even the flippy side was quite interesting. So some a lot of times you can come across um, quite aggressive people or uh, well, intimidating people, and he was definitely one of those and they're not very interesting, but he really dismantled you by being very interesting
1: and very intimidating. Yeah. That's very rare. When you give yourself to the people, um, when when you you don't you don't have a problem with your ego, um, you're beyond that. So, all right, it takes a big ego to give you drive, but at that point, you just put yourself out there, you know, and you you put your vulnerability out there, you put your your passion out there. You put a lot of things out there that your average Joe doesn't have a chance to voice, and he did that uh, in a very unique way. And uh, yeah, so I mean that, and and obviously charisma, um, it, it plays a huge part in all of this. But I think it comes from the qualities I was just talking about.
2: He reacted to the things around him. You've got to think here is a here is a guy who got polio at nine who was sent to special needs school when there weren't such a thing, where special needs was a big basket that everything got thrown into, who had a very difficult, he was really intelligent, had a very difficult upbringing, you know, in the the social uh, area, and was observing life. I mean, the place he went to... The rule was, if you fell down, you were not to be helped up. And in Ian's case, that was very difficult. He was quite badly deformed by polio down one side of his body. This guy had a, had a very novel and interesting life, uh, you know, difficult. And it was from that experience that he became this writer and this observer.
0: Ian's deadpan delivery and the rolling funk of the blockheads on paper seems an impossible combination, and yet it
1: simply worked. Going back to that period, I mean, none of us quite knew what we were doing. I mean, Ian it was very much himself, but I think at that point, no one had really mixed that sort of, you know, Cockney um, charm and that kind of delivery, very London, very guttural, with kind of funk. Now, that wasn't our only, you know, card in our pack. Obviously, we, we, we were kind of punky as well so this wasn't just kind of smooth funk or whatever it was it was just um it was what it was and ian bless him he never worried about genres you know i think that was an issue for quite a lot of artists they wanted to find their niche um and and you know stick to it and you you find that a lot today in, in today's market people stick to their niche with ian he didn't probably know what what that was, or he didn't care about that.
2: That kind of whole, slightly funk, slightly rock and roll kind of vibe, and Ian's incredible uh, double entendre lyrics and uh, kind of uh, music hall uh, interest in life became uh, became a bit of a standout. I mean, you can't imagine anybody getting away with that uh, like he did. But that's what Stiff stood for. It was. It was the songs rather than the, um, the, the physical image and the uh, tarted up um, nature of which most of the major record companies made their decisions on rather than the music.
3: I think they were coasting a kind of bunch of other things, scenes that were going on, but weren't really deep. I mean, Dad liked the ethic of punk, but yeah. probably wasn't that interested in the composition of it, you know. And I think they, they exploited that breaking through so they sort of piggybacked on it a little bit but he was into sort of deep muso jazz funk really and and you know there was like a jazz funk band with a kind of poet poet actor each separated on their own didn't quite make sense but it was only when they combined they complemented each other didn't they the blockheads and the dad i just think it's a lot of elements that were unknown to them at the time how brilliant they were and i think it it's it's like a it's the, the attitude in the first place that galvanises all those people in one place. But I think it's the, you know, the drumming, the recording of the drumming, the bass player Norman, You know, Chaz's composition, Dad just totally tuning every word to the point where it never violates over-wordy or under-wordy and still paints a story and is sort of dictated by his very odd sense of melody. It's unbelievable. And it's, I think it's that, you know, that well, you know, the Microsoft syndrome, whatever that is, that 10-year thing where you've been doing something, doing something, and you float, you suddenly, it's the third, uh, the putting eye, you know, the, the third eye appears, and you go, and, it, and the ball floats off and goes into a hole in one, or whatever it's called, I don't understand golf very much, but it's something, it's, there's a magical state that you can achieve, and I think that's what happened there. And there's a burden you create by making that that brilliant because it's never been repeated. But it wasn't repeated by them and it wasn't repeated by anybody. And it is one of the rare, I mean, I listen to it all the time and I'm, it sort of freaks me out about music a little bit when I listen to it, because I go, oh my God, that's such a complicated, full-bodied entity of a thing. I don't understand how good, why is it so good? You know,
1: Working with Ian um, was extraordinary because Every single gig we ever played, the audience went nuts. Um, you know, I mean, it's almost like, you know, a, a switch was switched, you know, lights which had gone on and, and people went nuts. Um, Ian seemed to have that, the golden touch. It could be unpredict- unpredictable. Ian could fall over. He could get drunk. He, all kinds of stuff could go on. But um, he he had this sort of, like... London Stroke, uh, Chaplin-esque thing going on. It was quite humorous, but quite dark. You know, and I'm talking about, really, about his stage persona. It was very, at times, I'd look over and I'd see his jugular veins sort of coming out, practically coming out of his neck. I mean, he put 100% into every gig. As we do the Blockheads today, we've never been, you know, and I think that's people, why people love Ian and loved us today and the whole caboodle, is because um, we we, we're not, we never... Just play the notes. We we give it 100%. He's a hundred percent. Is is a one off. He was coming from a lot of different angles, a lot of different angles. You know, he, as as I was saying, you know, I think underlying it all, there was a humanitarian. But he did like to have a pop, you know, and, and did it in a caustic way that I think really appeals to our, you know, our British humour.
3: People buy into something they believe in, don't they? And and I don't think there was any, there's not any element of it of disingenuousness with what Dad did. He was very genuine very difficult but very genuine
0: as a person thanks to dave robinson Chaz jenkel and baxter Dury. i'm mark goodyear you've been listening to classic album club